peace, peace, and welcome. We're glad you're here. This is the Cuckoo Monday Morning Podcast. I am here with the top law enforcement officer in the great city of San Francisco. Did the fire of all political odds. <laughs> the man with the plan, the people's champion, Mr. Bodine. Boudin. Yeah, you got it. Okay. Boudin. Boudin. Welcome. Thank you. Good to be here with you. Thanks for coming by the office. Yeah, man. Thanks for doing this. Absolutely. Yeah. At uh, Cook on Monday Morning, we believe that if you own Monday Morning, you can own the week. If you own the week, you can own the year. And if you change your year, you can change your life. So there's so many things I want to get into you with, but I have to start with uh, not endorsing you. <laughs> All right, good. Yeah, I'm glad you brought it up. I was going to have to otherwise. So. Because, um, uh, all right, so congratulations on your uh, win Thank as you. district attorney. I think that for everyone that was a political pundit, seeing it happen was like it, like the, the earth shifted. It was like that. Like um, It was close too, right? It was a close race, yeah. I think, you know, it depends how you calculate with ranked choice and all that, but I think the final count, if you include all the rank choice analysis, was within a percentage point. Okay. Okay. Yeah. About that range. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, when we, so you know, as part of like being on the school where people ask me to sit down with them to uh, to get my endorsement, and when I heard about your story, um, and we talked about this, it was like um, I'd always wanted an opportunity to say, like you know, after the DA's office. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you can say it. Yeah. You, free speech, First Amendment. Right. And uh, and I felt like your candidacy represented that because um, everything that you were talking about and represented was like, you know, the, historically to me, the DA has just been a group of people that sent black people to jail. That's kind of like all that I thought about them, like the police, the DA. And, um, you know, being on the school board, my perspective about what, um, how to partner with these groups in order to keep kids safe is shifted. And I talked to the police chief about this too. And um, and I didn't endorse you. And uh, Oh, I remember. Yeah. I yeah. remember. <laughs> and, I, I, you know, I should, I should do this quickly because I don't have that much time with you. So I just want to say this, like, um, it was the hardest endorsement I've ever had to make. And I don't think I've told you this in person, but um, usually it's quick for me. I can decide within like a, a, an hour you know i kind of know it before i sit down with the person and it took me like two months to make a decision i remember because we had a lot of people i mean we you and i sat down we had a good conversation and a lot of people we have in common were, were leaning on you heavy to to get on my side and i remember when i got a text from you i think saying hey it was a really difficult decision i'm sorry you know it's just the, the way i'm gonna go and i was really surprised because i felt that we had uh, a lot of values in common i felt we had a good connection when we sat down to talk i know we did I and mean, it wasn't just how i felt so i was disappointed uh, not to get your support and i'm really glad that i didn't need it in the end <laughs> there you go <laughs> that's exactly that's exactly what happened because like fernando and cinco marquez who's a close friend of mine and camille yeah um they were like they like pushed me tough and i respect those guys a lot yeah you know camille's dad was in prison with my dad yeah did a lot of time me. together i visited his um his dad many times with his um with his dad's wife um um, more than with Kamel, but his wife used to visit a lot, and we ended up on a lot of overnight visits together mm -hmm. when I was a kid. So I got to know Kamel's dad fairly well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, needless to say, you know, I really want you to succeed. I appreciate it. And uh, that. when when I told you that I wouldn't support you, you said, um, "No problem. I look forward to working together once we once I win." 
and now you've won. And here we are. And here we are. And here we are. And you were gracious enough to do this, so I, I really appreciate it. My pleasure. My pleasure. What, what are, I mean, I, I talked about sort of like under, like um, you overcoming a lot of odds to win that race. Like, how would you explain what happened? Do you agree with that? Or, or a- absolutely. I mean, just to set the stage for folks who didn't follow closely. Um, it was a four-way race. It was the first time in over 100 years there's no incumbent on the ballot for the San Francisco district attorney. And I was the last candidate to get in the race. The other three people I ran against were all in the race. Um, one of them had over $160,000 in the bank when I started, um, had already locked in endorsements from you know both U.S. senators, the governor, the lieutenant governor, seven members of the board of supervisors, You know much of uh, all the establishment endorsements you could ask for, many of which had been locked in before I even got in the race. So I got in knowing it was going to be an uphill battle. And, and mind you, I was never someone who was involved in politics in, in that way. I was never on the school board. I never ran for office. I was never on the DCCC. Um, I was never a legislative aide or you know a staffer for someone in Congress. I never did any of the things that so many folks we see running for office did as a training ground, as a networking opportunity, as a professional development thing. I did the work. I was a public defender. I was in the courthouse. I was trying cases. And I was doing policy work, impact litigation, legislative work. But doing it from the standpoint of a substantive commitment to criminal justice reform, not from the standpoint of, I want to build a career in politics. And so I was an outsider um, coming in late in the game. And yeah, the odds were definitely against me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, your, your, yeah, your upbringing, your background um, is, is incredibly interesting. I think like, I don't know if I don't I don't know if we have we have a lot of powerful stories that come in sort of sort of the political space here, but like you worked for Victor, what's his name, Hugo Chavez. Oh, well, they, people say that a lot. I didn't actually work for him. Oh, okay, that's, yeah, that's a, one of those <laughs> like, commonly repeated. <laughs> right, one of those commonly repeated. I did. Um, so I was a Rhodes Scholar uh-huh. um, after college that's at Oxford. Yeah, it was. I was really honored to receive the scholarship, and it's a great network of people. A really amazing educational opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, did two master's degrees at Oxford, mm-hmm. and in between those two master's degrees, I took a year and I went. I went to Venezuela and I did research um, in Venezuela. Okay. And I was embedded in the presidential palace of Hugo Chavez, the then president of Venezuela. Mm-hmm. And I did research and writing as an independent freelance journalist and as an academic. Uh, looking at his government, looking at its relationship with the United States in particular, okay. its use of oil in foreign policy to undermine U.S. interests. Mm-hmm. I wrote a master's thesis at Oxford about it the next year, uh, wrote a couple books. Um, when I went back to law school, I ended up teaching classes to undergraduates on Venezuelan politics. So it was really much more from the standpoint of academic research publishing journalism it. it's been misconstrued to say that i worked for him. i never met the man mm-hmm. uh and i never received any money from from his office or his his presidential palace got it yeah i think i read on wikipedia that you were an interpreter or something like that i was an interpreter down there that's how i got my foot in the door to okay. do my academic research got it, um, got it. so I, again i never interpreted i never met him uh-huh. so i never worked with him directly i did translate a book of interviews uh-huh. that he did from spanish to english mm-hmm. uh, but i was hired by a u.s-based publisher to do that work. They mm-hmm. wanted to be able to publish uh, this book and they hired me as someone who spoke fluent Spanish uh, and was on the ground in Venezuela. So I had the the 
cultural and political context to do a good job with the translation. Mm -hmm. um, but the the paycheck came from a U.S.-based publisher for that project. Got it. So yeah. you're clearing stuff up on. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity. <laughs> a lot of misinformation out there, yeah. always. Well, you're kind of like a, a a hot topic for like conservative news outlets and you know and and the local media. One of the um, as soon as you got in. There was a news report about like you letting a lot of people go from the office here. Yeah. And um, I was like, oh, he for real. Yeah. Well, you know, I was elected <laughs> to make changes, right? Uh -huh. And and at the end of the day, um, personnel changes are really difficult. Um, mm -hmm. But I think what we did was narrow. It was precise. Um, it was restrained. And for a point of comparison, just, you know, for folks who are watching or listening, we have about 120 lawyers in the office. Mm -hmm. I let seven people go my first week. Mm -hmm. um, I want you to just imagine for a moment that whichever Democrat you may support in this wide field of Democratic presidential candidates mm -hmm. right, wins. Maybe you don't support them. Whichever one wins, whether it's Bernie, whether it's uh, Warren, whether it's Bloomberg, doesn't matter. Pick, pick one of the candidates. They win the White House. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's going to be a single member of the Trump cabinet that still has their job? Yeah, no. No. Do you think there's going to be a single ambassador that was appointed by President Trump that's still going to have their job? Maybe one or two. Yeah, I hear you. Right? So what we did in this office was less than 5% mm -hmm. turnover. Mm -hmm. After an election where I was voted into office by people demanding significant changes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what I'm trying to do is targeted, precise, slow, careful, respectful, way more restrained than you would see if there was a new ch uh, police chief put in place, mm -hmm. way more restrained than what you would see if we had a new mayor elected. Mm -hmm. When you have changes in executive leadership, voters expect and demand changes. And what we did, and I think this is a testament to the high quality of the staff in this office, was really restrained. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, as as a casual bystander, I, I imagine you got some some pushback for that. But as a bystander, that's the message that is sent that you were coming into, um, and there was going to be a new way of doing things here. At least that's reading. And that's headline. right. And that is right. Mm -hmm. and, and I and, and that is the message. I mean, I think from the whole campaign that we're going to do things differently. We're going to hire new people. Mm -hmm. We're going to have a different approach. Um, you know, one that puts victims first, one that is not just focused on punishment and retribution and sending more men of color to cages, but rather on having interventions that hopefully break the cycle uh, of, of crime and punishment and, mm -hmm. and victimization. Um, we can do that with a lot of the existing staff. And that's where we're lucky. You know, that that that's something where I think D.A. Gascone did a lot of heavy lifting in terms of transforming this office. Mm -hmm. um, California, you know, has the largest prison system in the country. And within all the counties in California, San Francisco sends the least people, any way you measure it, to state prison, per capita, raw numbers. Mm -hmm. And that's what I inherited. So I'm lucky that I inherited an office where they're already really good at finding alternatives to prison. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I should mention, um, I wore my best suit for this interview. <laughs> well, it looks good. <laughs> it looks sharp. I, I appreciate that. Yeah, and um, and I brought that up because I was before we started talking. I was uh, I was saying you look very Adachi today. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I you know Adachi was uh, definitely a fan of the pinstripe suit. Mm -hmm, it's true, mm -hmm. um, and he was a mentor and a friend of mine. You know, he gave me my first. Uh, my first real job um, as a lawyer, practicing law, trying cases, learned a tremendous amount in his office, got to do more than two dozen jury trials right here in the Hall of Justice, got to know many of the people in the office I now run in that capacity. Um, and as we're talking here today, it's uh, almost exactly a year after the date that uh, that Jeff passed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, I think when we sat down, I mentioned to you that when I was sworn in to the school board, Jeff swore me in. Yeah. And, uh, and so... Um, 
yeah, it was it was you know it was hard for me uh, the day that he passed and and whenever I had a really tight political moment, like uh, I would call him and Sophie Maxwell. I had Sophie Maxwell on the podcast, mm -hmm. and I was explaining this to her. There was like a it was a time um, back in 2018 when I was on a London Bridge shortlist to be appointed for a seat, and you know you don't know who to trust, you don't know who to call. I called Jeff and uh, Sophie uh, that day, and and that was sort of like the. The people that I relied on, so yeah. um, good people. Yeah. Both of them, real good people. Who 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 do you rely on? Like when you think about like um, if you have like a, some mentors and people that you look to for guidance in this work, or people that you don't mind talking about publicly. Yeah, there's a lot of people um, actually, and it really depends on what area of the work. I mean, I'm lucky that I have a really big network of friends, of supporters, of mentors, of colleagues. There's people in the office. You know, my chief of staff, Christine DeBerry, uh, who's been here uh, for many years. Um, the chair of my transition team, Ann Irwin, does a tremendous amount of work at the state level around criminal justice reform, was a public defender, um, but focuses much more on legislative issues and, and the progressive prosecutor movement. Uh, at the national level, I'm really lucky to be able to call on people um, in my same situation, you know, who were elected as district attorneys in other jurisdictions on a mandate for real systemic change. People like Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, Rachel Rollins in Boston, uh, Kim Fox in Chicago, and more, um, you know, are all people who, you know, reach out. I reach out to them regularly for advice about particular issues. Sean King mm -hmm. uh, is another person who I'm in close contact with. Um, you know, and those are just people kind of in this immediate direct um, work, you know, but if you go another level out in terms of broader life guidance, you know, people I go all the way back with, um, friends, family, um, who I've been close with for decades, uh, help give me guidance. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I mentioned a little bit about a lot of the news reports that have come out, you know, surrounding some of the initiatives that you have introduced. Um, I, I know, I know that people from historically marginalized communities were super excited that you won. And I saw the, uh, some of the victory i saw the victory speech at el rio mm -hmm. that night and um it seems like you know the chronicle especially is kind of having a they're 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 talking about you a lot <laughs> um do you think that the the city how do you think the city is embracing uh your leadership thus far based on some of the things that you've done you know as we're talking today i've only been in office about 45 days it's early you know i think what we see is is not a surprise we see a lot of folks who opposed me during the campaign uh, before I even took office, already starting to lay the groundwork to undermine me. So I heard stories before I'd even taken office of you know individual police officers saying to crime victims who call the police, we're not going to bother making an arrest because of this new DA. And they're like, but he hasn't even taken office yet. Mm -hmm. And they're already that that narrative is already out there. And we see some of the same attacks in op-eds that were published in the Examiner and some of the coverage in the Chronicle, um, really laying the groundwork for and, and fomenting resistance to the changes that that I was elected to implement. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not surprised by that. You know, it, it is what it is. There's a lot of voices in San Francisco, and there's a lot of voices that um, you know have access to media that that have close relationships with um, you know different channels of public communication. And and uh, my thing is, I represent everybody. You know, we mm -hmm. ran a hard race, we won a narrow victory, um, and now it's about governing. It's not about trying to be in, um, you know, a narrow mindset that we only represent the people who supported us. That's why I'm here talking with you. That's why last night I spent an hour at a community meeting, um, you know, in, the, in, in, in you know, west of Twin Peaks, talking to people who, most of whom in the room, I'm sure didn't vote for me. Mm -hmm. But we need to work together to make San Francisco safer. And I approach this work with a tremendous amount of humility. It's a big job. It's not an easy job. Um, the city has very real challenges. 
uh, in terms of public safety. And we have a legacy, as you pointed out, where the district attorney's office and the police department uh, in San Francisco and beyond are associated with a tremendous amount of harm that's been caused, particularly in poor and marginalized communities, communities of color. So we've got to grapple with and, and own the history of, of the department and of the agencies that we're part of, and at the same time, move forward in a way that doesn't expose our communities to, to risk of violence or increased crime. It's a big job. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot of problems, a lot of deficits in terms of funding, in terms of state law, in terms of bureaucracy. Um, and I'm open to working with anybody who shares my commitment to making the city safer and putting victims' needs first. Mm -hmm. So a, sa a safer San Francisco in, um, in year one, what, what would that look like for you? So I think we need to you know, think broadly about how we understand public safety. I mm -hmm. think one of the problems with um, a traditional tough on crime approach is that it, it is really short-sighted. It fails to think about long-term consequences. It fails to think about the ways in which our failure to support and protect victims um, then leads, many, in many instances, those people to end up getting arrested and prosecuted down the line. So, for example, as a public defender, I represented you know, over 1,000 individuals who were charged with crimes. And... Almost every single one of those people had themselves been a victim of crime at some point. Many of them, especially the women, um, had been victims of violent crime, of domestic violence, of sexual assault, of trafficking of various kinds. Um, and, you know, for, for, for the district attorney's office to just say, well, we care about public safety, and that means if you get arrested, we're going to prosecute you, and we're going to ignore what happens after we prosecute you. Are you more or less likely to commit a crime? What kind of an intervention do we have that sets you on a path to not reoffend? Um, and if we ignore the, the past, the, the, the history, what led you to a place where you committed this crime you're accused of, then I think we fail to do our jobs and we fail to think about public safety. I'll give you another really concrete example that most district attorneys don't consider. We put people in jail every day for property crimes. We have a big property crime in San Francisco. I spend a huge amount of my time working on trying to reduce property crime and try to do it in a way that's effective and data-driven. But property crime is not violent crime. It's not murder. It's not sexual assault. And we know that across this country, there's about a 10% chance that somebody who's put in a jail will be sexually assaulted. That's public safety too. We represent the people, all of the people. That means the people in the jail. It means the people west of Twin Peaks. It means the people east of Twin Peaks. It means the people in Bayview, Mission, Sunset. We represent everybody. The people who are victims, the people who are accused of crimes. And we've got to make sure that our interventions are actually reducing crime in the future, not increasing it. All too often, People demand tough on crime policies without any indication or empirical data or evidence to show that those tough on crime policies actually make us safer. Mm. Uh, I got a chance to tour um, the county jails uh, like a year ago through the sheriff's office, and they took me up to D Block on the um, top floor of A50, mm -hmm. which, is, uh, which is not a pleasant place. No, it's not. It's a very, very scary place. And... Um, like a lot of guys packed into small rooms, no place to sit down, walking around and awaiting trial for, you know, years at a time. What does the DA's office, um, if anything, have to do with them them waiting for trial? Um, so it's a big issue, you know, uh, the the age of cases as well as the conditions in 850 Bryant, um, that jail there, trying to close county jail for trying to resolve cases more quickly is a high priority for me. Mm -hmm. When I took office, there were about 5,500 open cases. 
And about 20% of those cases, over 1,000 cases, were more than two years old. Now, many of those people are not in jail. Um, many of them are out of custody, um, and many of them are engaged in various kinds of programming. Some have gone up to Napa State Hospital for mental health issues. But there are a significant number of them that are in jail. In most instances, um, it's not the DA's fault that those cases are so old, in mm -hmm. the sense that under California law, if a defendant wants to go to trial, they have a right, speedy trial right, they can be in front of a jury within 60 days, absent very extraordinary circumstances. Mm -hmm. So usually those delays are because of the defense, not wanting to go to trial right away. But nevertheless, as district attorney, I wanna close old cases. Mm -hmm. I wanna give people fair plea deals. I wanna dismiss cases we can't prove. And I wanna take cases to trial where we can't come to terms um, through negotiations. And I don't wanna have them wait five years. It's not fair to defendants who are sitting in jail, not fair to their families who need some kind of certainty about what to expect in the future. It's not fair first and foremost to victims who want closure, who wanna have some sense that justice has been served. And it's not fair to witnesses, whether they be police officers or civilians, who are gonna get called to testify about events that they witnessed or documented years ago. It's not fair to the courts. It's not fair to the jurors. We've got to do a better job having swift and certain justice and having justice really be just, not just about exacting the toughest punishment, but about having an intervention that helps heal the victim, restore them to where they were before the crime was committed, and set the person up who caused the crime to be held accountable in a way that doesn't lead to a cycle of crime and violence in the future when they get released. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I, think, I think it's important just to know too that... Um you know, when I was people, their sensibilities may be a little off when I say like uh, jail is a scary place, like it's not supposed to be like a pleasant, like fun place. But the when you look at the difference between the way that the pods are set up versus the way that that cell block is set up, it's like a, it's like night and day in terms of the conditions that um, some of the guys uh, like behind bars are in. And the idea that, you know, the reason that I went because I was thinking about the impact of um, kids with incarcerated parents, right, and and to consider that they have parents away and they don't even actually have a sentence yet, you know. So I was like, man, this is kind of ridiculous that yeah, this looks this terrible and that kids are uh, disconnected from their parents, which you know, which we see in a lot of our research shows will perpetuate perpetuate the cycle. Right. Of, um, of crime, so. Well, you know, I mean, when I was a kid, my parents got arrested. I know you're aware, I was 14 months old. Mm -hmm. And um, both of my parents ended up serving long prison sentences. My mom did 22 years before she came home. My dad's still incarcerated today. He served nearly 40 years in prison. He's 75 years old. But before they were sentenced, they spent about three years in county jail. So I went through that as a kid, mm -hmm. visiting them, not knowing when they were gonna get out, if they were gonna get out, what their sentence would be. Um, you know, we had no idea. And that's something that uh, sadly millions of American children go through. It's traumatic, it's destabilizing. Um, and it's one of the reasons why the very first policy that I announced after taking office was a diversion program for primary caregiver parents. We do not want primary caregiver parents in jail, behind bars, in cages. We want them at home taking care of their families. We can hold people accountable for nonviolent crimes in ways that don't involve destroying families. And that's exactly what we're gonna do in San Francisco. Right on, right on. Yeah, I think that might be a good area for uh, you. I, I love that idea. It might be a good area for you to collaborate, you know? Now that like, I'm, I wanna see you succeed, yeah. even though I didn't 
We need partnership. <laughs> and we need partnership with the school. We need partnerships with other agencies. Yeah. That's not something we can do alone. We need programming so that if we refer someone to diversion who is a primary caregiver but maybe has a substance issue, mm -hmm. they're getting drug treatment. Or if they need parenting skills to do a better job being there for their family, they get those parenting classes. Mm -hmm. That's part of the, the goal behind the diversion program is to give people the programming necessary to avoid getting arrested next time around. Right. Yeah. And I'm sure you know, I mean, the, the school district already has a partnership with um, – some of the, the with the county jail around kids being able to visit their parents, right? And so you know them being able to those kids being able to see you and hear your story and uh, relate to that situation, I think would be um, a very powerful thing to set up too. Well, I'm way ahead of you. I've already volunteered for the one family uh, visitation program at the jail. I've done it multiple times on Father's Day. Uh, several years I've gone in, mm -hmm. um, helped supervise some of those visits. Mm -hmm. Love the work that that one family and Community Works West is doing in the jail mm -hmm. with parenting classes with supervised contact visits with kids, mm -hmm. uh, really committed to those programs. Um, not just because I know firsthand how important it is for the kids who are innocent, who haven't done anything wrong, but because I also know empirically that it reduces recidivism rates and keeps our community safer. Mm -hmm. When we give people who are locked up an opportunity to stay connected to their family, to stay connected to their communities, they're far less likely to get rearrested when they come home. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, I know you got a you know a whole department to run. I don't want to keep you too much longer. I, I do um, in the podcast always talking about uh, leadership and legacy. Uh, do you have any guiding principles when it comes to leadership? You know, I think you got to be willing to work at least as hard as you expect other people around you to work. You got to lead by example, and that means putting in the hours, doing the work, rolling up your sleeves, understanding the issues, um, you know, and and not being above it. Um, so that's something that I try to do. I try to work at least as hard as I expect anybody else to work. Um, and I try to be accessible to staff and to community to make sure that I'm hearing firsthand, um, you know, what the issues are as much as possible and that, um, you know, I don't just allow filters to, to prevent information that's important to, to, to get to me. Um, but you know, I know the bigger agency you run, the harder it is to do that. Um, the more issues you have coming at you, the, the more challenging it becomes to really be accessible to everybody. Um, but I think that always has to be the principle is just, you know, Remember that there's a lot of real people's lives who are caught up in this system, and you can't get too far away from the the human impact of the crimes, of the sentences, of the jail system we've got, of the housing conditions in the jail. And, and you can't forget that the work we do in the criminal justice system is, is deeply connected, inextricably tied to education, mm -hmm. healthcare, housing, employment, we can't solve the problems that land on our plate if we're not also paying attention to those other areas. Yeah, and, and legacy. So um, I named my uh, my company after my great-grandfather, Luther Harris. It's called the Luther Harris Holding Company. He moved to San Francisco in 1947 with a sixth grade education and bought homes for him and all of his family. Um, his legacy is important to me. Um, and so how do you think about legacy and how do you think about your legacy? I'm only 45 days in, so I'm, you know, I'm really focused on trying to do a good job and accelerating the learning curve for all that I have to learn and, and take on in, in this in this new role. But um, you know, long term, um, I want to leave San Francisco safer than I found it, and, and safety is a complicated thing to define. You know, it's not just about arrest rates or conviction rates or or crime rates even, right? Um, I want to see less racial disparities in the criminal justice system. I want to see less people locked up. I want to see more diverse. 
mechanisms for holding people accountable who do commit crime. Um, so we're not simply relying on cages and handcuffs and, and prison sentences, but also restorative justice. I want to give every victim of every crime the right to be heard and to have a process where they can sit down if they choose to with people who cause them harm. And we can work things out as mature adults where we're not focused on vengeance, but we're focused on healing and prevention. And that's something that's not just a, a, a big lift in terms of this office and how it's set up, but it's also a big lift in terms of the culture and what people expect and demand from the district attorney's office. I would love it if four years from now, eight years from now, whenever it is that I move on to the next thing, we as a community, we as a city are more focused on dedicating resources to healing and supporting victims and to preventing future crimes than we are to narrowly punishing people who we've arrested. Thank you, Mr. DA. My pleasure. Good to see you. <laughs> appreciate you. your time. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate you. I'll also. see you again. Yeah, yeah. Peace, peace. And thank you for listening to another episode of Cook on Monday Morning. I really like to thank our district attorney, Chester Bodine, for coming on the podcast. He has a really incredible story. It is undoubtedly inspiring. And he went through a hard political battle. He came out victorious. Um, and, uh, you know, and I own the fact that I didn't support him. You know, it was hard for me uh, in that political decision, but um, I want him to succeed. And I want someone that has a background like him to achieve positions like the one that he's achieved and commit, commit themselves to serving our city. So, Mr. Bodine, congratulations. Thank you for giving up your busy schedule to sit down and talk with me about law enforcement. Throughout the month of March, we will be talking to leaders that have something to do with public safety and law enforcement and keeping our streets safe. Please let me know what you uh, think about the discussions, um, what your opinions are about public safety in the city. I'd love to continue to build with you around how to create better solutions to improve our, our city and the city that we love. So I'd like to thank Chessa, I'd like to thank you for reaching out about your concerns. I'd like to thank the people that made this podcast possible. Uh, David Topete, our videographer producer. Thank you, sir. I'd like to thank Fernando Cinco Marquez for the editing that he does of the newsletter. I'd like to thank Icy House for uh, providing the mics for uh, the show. I'd like to thank the people that make San Francisco the beautiful, incredible city that it is. Those are our teachers our school lunch workers, our custodians. Uh, they are our first responders, people that keep our streets safe, people that keep our streets clean. I'd like to thank our uh, bus drivers and the people that are on the front lines every day supporting others that are struggling. This podcast for you, is for you. I am your biggest fan, and you make San Francisco the beautiful, incredible city that, that I love. If you are interested in reaching out to me, you can reach out to me, info at stevoncook.com. You can reach out to me on Twitter, at stevoncook, on Instagram, at stevoncook. I want to build with you. I want to build with you if you're in San Francisco or if you're in a city like Oakland, LA, uh, Houston, Dallas, New Orleans, Philadelphia, uh, Chicago, Detroit, the state of Florida, uh, anywhere and anywhere that is looking to redefine their Monday morning change themselves, change their community. Uh, I want to I want to build with you. Please reach out. And until we see each other next week, have a great week. Peace peace and we out. Mm -hmm.